welcome back to Round 12, the podcast that will always be dedicated to growth, development, and motivational mastery. I am your host, Sensei Roger B. Hamilton. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of the Round 12 podcast series. Let's go get it. Race, relations, and business, what a tangled web we weave.
It had now been more than four years that I was developing my craft as a business professional, and I had grown tremendously. Yes, I was the only black employee in the company I worked for, and yes, I was certainly the only high-profile sales representative in an industry that was obviously not a haven for diversity or inclusion, but I had worked extremely hard to excel. Some might say twice as hard as my Caucasian counterparts, but that was okay. I knew the drill. My communication skill had risen to an effective high level. My sense of awareness and business acumen had made me feel solid, and my continued growth seemed inevitable and certain if I just stayed my course and remained efficient. Yes, I would certainly continue to expect to have to work a little bit harder and be just a little bit better than I was the day before, and sometimes while I understood that that was tough, I proudly pressed on. And I am living proof that you can indeed do a lot more today than you did yesterday. I was certain then, and even now, that black people or any people for that matter, can afford to rest on their laurels and let life pass on by like a parade that you watch from the 20th floor. True growth is a day-to-day struggle, and I truly grew stronger from its exercise. But here is an example of how and why many of us feel that the landscape we operate within is not a fair and equitable environment, and many social inequities have come to light, which makes social change an important topic for review. It had been two years since I began my job as an account executive with Professional Sales Associates. It was now the year 1986. I was 28 years old. By this time, I remembered seeing only one other African-American sales professional among the hundreds of people I met and worked with, 
and only a couple other random people of color in the industry in a sparse inside sales position. That was the extent of racial balance when it came to black folks in the business I was in, at least here in California. I had overcome so many obstacles that I didn't even see them as obstacles any longer. Turning a positive into a negative was my way of life now, even though there were so many subtle instances which made it apparent that there was still a fundamental lack of acceptance by many of my peers. Nevertheless, I did my job and I would let nothing break my stride. Like the National Office Products Association convention held in Chicago, NOPA was the acronym they went by. Several times throughout the year, there were local functions which were essentially the same, except they were on a much smaller scale. This local gathering was called a tabletop show. Different accounts or organizations would sponsor these events, and whoever called on the account was individually responsible for the organization of the booth. The sponsors of these shows would charge manufacturers a fee to display their product, thereby allowing the sponsor to invite his customers and provide them with refreshments as well as introduce them to the latest developments in the industry. If you were a member of a manufacturer's rep group, generally your associates would attend to help work the sales floor. Usually, if you had three reps in your group, you would all meet at the place where the show would be held and participate in what was called the setup. During the setup, each rep would bring the displays or literature from his or her own vehicle into the building. If the function was held at a convention center, which was generally the case, the first thing in the morning before the show began, you would see a line of cars and U-Hauls and vans and small trucks lined up outside all strategically in the loading zone of the building. If the building had no loading zone, everybody would park out front and load from there. The more lines your group sold, obviously the more items you would have to unload. My company had about 10 lines, all of which would be on display at this particular show, which meant many trips back and forth to our cars for the three reps in our rep group. Let me remind you, my, my associates were all non-black. It could have been anywhere, but this particular morning, the tabletop show would be held in Oakland, California, at the Oakland Convention Center. My associates and I arrived early that day. As we always did, we parked our cars outside of the building and began to unload. The large swarm of vehicles lined the front of this brand new structure like ants on an abandoned piece of fruit. All the manufacturer's rep groups and direct sales reps hurriedly went about the business of finding their assigned booth and taking the merchandise from outside to in. I had already made several trips inside and finally my car was empty. I walked from inside the convention center and was bouncing toward my vehicle when I noticed a police officer, two cars parked behind me beginning to issue parking citations. There was still maybe 50 or more cars parked in front of the building, so I smiled to myself knowing this officer was about to have a field day. Of course, I had finished unloading and felt relieved that I could move my car in time not to get sighted. In defense of everyone, there was only one available entrance for this building, so there was no alternative but to park out front. I climbed inside of my car and was about to drive off when the policeman yelled to me, Don't move that car! 
he barked with an angry scowl on his face. Excuse me? I said while leaning my head out of the window. I said, don't move that car, he barked again. What's the problem, officer? I said with a slight smile. The wheels of my vehicles were turned already in the street and my car was running. The mean-looking cop peered at me but never answered. I was in a tabletop state of mind, so I wasn't feeling at all confrontational. All these cars are just people unloading, I said. I just want to move mine out of the way. You move that car and you're going to jail, the officer snapped. He was still sitting in his car, writing a ticket for the vehicle two spaces behind mine. Going to jail? I exclaimed. On what charge? I asked, thinking he had to be kidding. Again, the officer didn't respond. Excuse me, officer, I said, but you're writing a ticket for cars that are behind me. Can't I just move my car out of the way? In my heart of hearts, I meant no disrespect. Or was I trying to give this guy a hard time? My mind was on work. I was just trying to get on with it. There were so many cars out there, he certainly wouldn't have a shortage of tickets. Oh, you're a tough guy, huh? The cop replied nastily. Tough guy? I said with an extremely confused frown on my face. I'm not a tough guy. I, I just asked you why I couldn't move my car. If you've got all these other cars here, I said, and you haven't even gotten to mine, why can't I just move? Plus, this is the only place we can unload anyway, I punctuated. I told you, you move that car, you're going to jail, he repeated. He continued writing the ticket of the car behind me. By this time in my life, I was so sick to death of some white man always trying to assert his authority over me based on something other than what was actually wrong, like his sense of superiority or ego or fear. Why did I have to be threatened like that? I pay much taxes, just like white people do. Though this wasn't the first time an Oakland police officer had jammed me up like this. Coincidentally, the first incident was when I had recently moved to the Bay Area and this out-of-control cop ran in front of my car. He screamed for me to stop when I had paused to look for a street name in my map book. And after a few seconds turned to drive off, he then decided that he was giving me a parking citation. Hadn't even stopped there long enough to take a deep breath. When I tell you to stop, you stop, the nutcase cop yelled. Then this wild man reached inside of my car and shut off my engine. He pulled my keys from the ignition and quickly put his hand on his gun. He then stood there like he was the new sheriff in town or something. When I quickly hopped from my brand new car, suit and tie and all, I asked him what his problem was. Then he sort of snapped out of it. I don't know what your problem is, I said, but you better give me my keys back. Then this cop started stuttering and talking about harassment. If you want to make a, a har harassment case uh, out of it, then, then go ahead, he said. He became instantly sullen. I hadn't even said anything about a legal proceeding, but he obviously knew the game all too well. Just, just, just when I tell you to stop, you stop. That's all, he said. It was as though his emotion had forced him to react. Then he caught himself and tried to regroup. The street was completely filled with black people that sunny day. The boy in blue started looking around all of a sudden like he was paranoid. Then the shaky officer of the law couldn't even look at me. He wrote the ticket while I stood there and stared at him. He never said another word. 
This current situation seemed to remind me of that day. I had earned the right. Why did I have to bow down to some character because he was not in a position to think clearly or fairly? Truly, if I had been smart, I would have just shut up and sat there for 10 minutes while he wrote three tickets. But I couldn't seem to do it. Why you got to threaten me to take me to jail simply because I ask a question? I said sarcastically. You must really like your job, huh? I punctuated. The officer continued writing. The look on his face was like I was some so secondary that I didn't even rate a drop of consideration. I seem to remember reading somewhere that if an officer wants to give you a parking ticket and he doesn't start writing before you're out of the space, then it's not legal. So once more, I asked the officer, could I move my car, please? I asked. Still, he ignored me. Like the principled man that I had become, I moved my car from the space and parked it directly across the street and fed the appropriate meter. I immediately noticed the officer get on his radio. Before I could lock my car and walk back across the street, two additional cop cars arrived. One car had two officers and the other had one. I could see my boy pointing toward me. Suddenly, two more officers arrived on foot. I walked across the street, hoping that they would allow me to walk inside the convention center and continue with my business, knowing they wouldn't. Immediately, they all rushed my way and made a specific effort to surround me. By now, I was all the way back on the other side of the street, directly in front of the building. I presented no erratic movement, and I posed no apparent threat. Nevertheless, they all looked nervous, and a couple were resting their hands on their weapons. What do you got to say now, tough guy? The initial cop barked, looking like he was gloating. All of these other officers seemed ready to pounce when they got the word, but none of them had any idea what had transpired. Man, what's your problem anyway? I asked sternly. I told you not to move, the cop yelled. Now you're under arrest. How you like that, tough guy? He punctuated. I shook my head slowly in response to the madness. You just stand there until I tell you to move, he instructed. Like I said, you must really like your job. I shook my head again. One of the officers on the scene was African-American. After three of the officers congregated near the cop's car, he walked toward me and looked sort of disgusted. Why don't you just try and relax, he offered. Relax, I said in a calm tone. I am relaxed. I didn't commit any crime, I added. Your boy's just got a problem with me. It's as simple as that. I was leaning on a car that was nearby and trying to get squared away and unload my vehicle, and now he wants to have a problem. A large crowd of my associates looked on in amazement. While these cops stood in a circle around me, of all those people who knew me and had dealt with me and had tried to tell me how different I was and that I was one of the good ones, not either of them would even think to say a positive word on my behalf. I watched them all stand there and look at me like I was part of a sideshow. Right then and there, I started thinking how divided my experience in that industry had been. I realized that when it was all said and done, I would just be something else for them to talk about. 
Finally, after about 15 minutes, the grumpy officer walked toward me and handed me two tickets. One was for parking, and the other was for a charge called obstructing a police officer. Supposedly, I was under arrest, but I wouldn't be taken in. I was instructed to turn myself in, or a warrant would be issued. I could hardly believe there was such a charge. When the commotion finally ended, I took my tickets and went inside. I said nothing further. No sooner than I got inside the building, all the white people began asking me what happened. One rep in particular felt compelled to tell me how he was going to say a good word for me, but he didn't want to get in the way. I was slightly humiliated, but I was more infuriated. We completed the show and I performed like I always had, but I was definitely feeling very black. I started thinking about what being black meant to some people as compared to being white. Many times it seemed that what I represented in spite of whether I worked hard, obeyed the law, or respected others was something dark and sinister. While my non-black peers skated through life feeling like they had a stake in the overall riches of the nation and they represented upright, lawful Americans. Most of them would tell you that their families had come to this country from somewhere else in search of a better life. They would boast about how their grandparents or great-grandparents were first or second generation this or that. Their families had felt that America was the land of opportunity and if you worked hard and kept your nose clean, you could live a good life. I overheard so many conversations that indicated the feeling of belonging that most white people enjoyed, which seemed diametrically opposed to the sense of despair and disenfranchisement that many black citizens still felt in spite of more than 400 years of history of struggle. When we speak about our great-grandparents' history, it provides us with the painful reminder that as Africans, they were the only group that were brought here against their will not free with the hope of a better life, but in chains like animals, to work for decades with no pay, to suffer inhuman and wicked injustices, and to continually be in doubt of whether they would ever be treated equally. It's been said that doubt is more cruel than the worst of truths. But black people's truths are pretty cruel too. Oftentimes to be black in this country is to be considered devilish, and to be white is to be considered righteous. The examples abound. The black cat, the white knight, the black sheep, the white wash, the black cloud, and the white lie. Even Webster can give us some insight as to what's in the consciousness of much of white America when black-white issue comes to question. The following are the character descriptions of both black and white as listed in the Webster Ninth New College Dictionary. Black, heavy, serious, dirty, soiled, thoroughly sinister or evil, wicked, indicative of condemnation or discredit, connected with or invoking the supernatural and especially the devil, very sad, gloomy, or calamitous, marked by the occurrence of disaster, characterized by hostility or angry discontent, 
sullen, characterized by grim, distorted, or grotesque satire. White, marked by upright fairness, free from spot or blemish, free from moral impurity, not intended to cause harm, innocent, favorable, fortunate, notably ardent. After scanning that list, it's no wonder black people suffer. I knew that these types of opinions were still fostered by many people, but I was no less motivated to make my life meaningful, and if I had to continue to fight for what I felt was right, then I would most definitely do so. After that police officer finished his attempt to spank me, he left the scene. He simply stopped writing tickets. It wasn't the citations he wanted. What he really wanted was to be certain to put me in my place. The following morning, I immediately got on the telephone to verify that this cop had actually charged me with a real charge. I called a friend who was an FBI agent, and I also called a couple of attorney's offices. Apparently, the charge was bona fide. One attorney, uh, one attorney warned me sternly, you better get in there because they could definitely issue a warrant for your arrest. Of course, my name and address were on the citation, so they could simply come to my apartment and pick me up. I was determined not to knuckle under to this cop who was obviously just trying to sweat me. I would wait as long as I could before going to the Oakland Police Headquarters to turn myself in. <sighs> I finished my work day and was trying to decide whether I should retain an attorney or speak in my own behalf. But in the mail the next day was a letter from the Municipal Court of Oakland. Apparently, as was indicated by the letter, all charges had been dropped. Well, I wonder why. I felt like pursuing the matter anyway. But like so many times when faced with the madness, it wasn't worth the poison that it left inside of me. I squashed the incident, not because I felt I was wrong, but because I felt I needed to continue to do everything in my power to maintain the good attitude that I had developed. Consequently, I sucked it up and went on with my life. But the incident served as another bitter reminder of what I could continue to expect as a black man. If I had any sense of self-worth or dignity, then I should anticipate fierce opposition from the powers that be. How could I reasonably feel any differently? The evidence was all around me. I would continue to have to work much, much harder than many others if I was to keep my cool and still be a man. The saga continued. Now here is a brief afterthought concerning the aforementioned incident. I did not realize until this moment as I composed these lines that nobody even read me my rights that morning. The whole idea that I was supposed to be under arrest and that I should walk into some police station to supposedly surrender was completely ridiculous. If I had in fact gone to court and exposed the fact that I was not informed of my Fifth Amendment rights, the case should have rightfully been a joke. Now here in the year 2020, 
And in the final analysis, this excerpt from my individual past speaks volumes about the subtlety of how men like me were considered threats along the way. While I am very proud of all that I've done to make a professional way for myself and do good work, I'm also completely understanding of why the youth of our nation feel a sense of new responsibility to say, enough! Their grandfathers have stories, their fathers have stories, they themselves have stories, and they all combine to make it abundantly clear that if we as a world community are to move forward amicably, then we must address this issue of race, culture, diversity, and fair play. In the end, I hope that one day, before they are as old as I am today, that my sons will feel connected, respected, and proud of the contributions that black people make, but specifically relieved from the mentally and emotionally draining second-class citizen perspective that they too have unfortunately been introduced to as young men. The time is now for all of us as human beings to stitch up this bleeding laceration of race which saps the energy from all of us, whether we know it or not. Our time as one nation is now. I truly hope that someday my sons can give their sons a new hope, a warm spirit, and a bright future. Thank you, my dear sons, for your excellent efforts to date. Our future is in your hands. And now a brief Postscript. Postscript. Many of folks who might listen to this podcast know me, and some intimately, closely, and they know that I don't wear race on my sleeve as a rule. And these stories that I shared over the last couple of weeks of episodes are only a small fraction of what I've experienced, some of them very deadly and dangerous. But there is a an imbalance in our country. And there is an issue that we need to contend with that has gone on for a very, very long time. I've been fortunate enough to work my way through it and never be incarcerated or have a problem uh, with the law specifically. And to never obviously get hurt at the hands of a police officer. But I've experienced my share and then some of some really poor behavior, mean, nasty, biased behavior in work environments around this nation. And they were never easy things to deal with. And they were way too many to be comfortable. So I would say to you, if you're listening to this now with a sense of empathy, then thank you for your consideration. And if you're listening as a police officer and you're saying, man, but I'm just trying to do my job, I say respect to you for the difficulty of your job. Just make sure that you, you don't become one of those ones that are part of the problem. And that you please do all that you can to try and be fair and reasonable and equitable with all citizens. And me and you can be cool. Um, but some of those mean, mean people that I've experienced uh, interaction with at some of these companies has been really something. Someday I'll have to write a book about all those things. And some of them were pretty ugly. But to end this podcast in the right way, the way that I'm accustomed to now, I would say this. Emphasize the positive. Find some good. And if you can't find any, dig a, dig a hole, move around the corner, pick up a rock, do whatever you got to do to, 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 to locate some. Because this world is swirling and this life is moving entirely too fast. And I'm not going to waste it all being miserable for somebody else.
So I would say to you, look up, as good old Les Brown would say, the tremendous motivational speaker. If you can look up, then you can get up. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of Round 12. May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. May the worst days of your future be like the best days of your past. And may you continue to answer life's bell every time. Until we meet again, time!